0: Wade, nice to see you. Good to see you, Ted. It's been, been a little while. Um, I'm going to try to introduce you to the audience here. I've known you most of my life, spent a summer with you in the Spatsisi wilderness when I was a kid.
1: I remember you gave me, in a very ceremonial gesture, your Leatherman. Do you remember
0: <laughs> that? I do, I do actually. Yeah. That's so sweet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. At the end of a summer up in the wilderness You'd you would come
1: up with your parents and you were very earnest and and you loved the place and um and your dad was just sort of making the transition from a kind of high-powered investment guy in philadelphia to the kind of crazy jackson hole adventure who he became and uh, your mom was there your uncle was there and you were just this incredible kid so keen on anything and you, i guess your dad had bought you a leatherman for the trip Yeah, and at the end of it, you were so sweet. You came up to me like it was a sort of this gesture of gratitude. Like, I mean, I felt you were giving me the most valuable thing you had.
0: You know, I I mean, in some ways, I was. Yeah, yeah. Well, you you showed me uh, experiences I had never. I mean, I remember seeing grizzly bears up there in the plateaus with you. You taught me how to chop wood. I mean, just wilderness experiences I had never had as a kid from Philadelphia to that point. So it was, it was a really meaningful trip. Well, you
1: certainly went on for a wild life, that's for sure.
0: Yeah. Well, so Wade, you, uh, resident explorer for National Geographic, um, famed ethnobotanist, author. You've been in a ton of documentaries. You've written extensively about the Amazon, about vanishing cultures, about languages that are being lost. You're an intellectual, an adventurer, an explorer, a photographer a storyteller just lots of things we'll get into to all of that i want to start just with a very simple question which is what is ethnobotany
1: well ethnobotany is just the study of the interaction of human beings and plants and for me ethnobotany was like any other vocation just a lens through which to see the world and only for a while you know i you know i was always fascinated by culture i went off to South America on my own at the age of 14, Um, because I had a mother who was very determined and said that Spanish was the language of the future. And I've always, I think from the youngest age, been interested in that interface between cultures. You know, I grew up in Quebec at the time of what we call the two solitudes, when French and English really weren't speaking to each other. I mean, it was really... Yeah, uh, For a time, it was very violent even. We had martial law, tanks in the streets of Montreal, a, a serious independence movement in Quebec. Some might have said a terrorist. There were bombings, kidnappings. And I grew up in an English suburb that was sort of plunked like a carbuncle in the back of a old traditional French village that probably went back certainly to the 18th century, probably the 17th century. And there was a boulevard Cartier Boulevard that literally divided the English from the French. And uh, as a little boy, my mother would uh, send me to buy groceries or cigarettes or milk at this little tiny little um, corner store that was owned by a wonderful francophone couple that was right on that dividing line. And I remember as a little boy looking across that boulevard and thinking uh, right across this road, there's another language, another religion, another way of life. And some voice in me was saying, you know, why aren't I allowed to cross this road? And that didn't come from my family, because my parents were much beloved in the village. They were very kind. But in the society, there was this chasm between those two worlds. And in a way, I've been crossing that road ever since, you know. So ethnobotany was really, you know, I I went off to university and... uh, uh, (laughs) You know, everybody thinks that um, life is linear. It's actually made up of these incredibly serendipitous moments, you know. And uh, I, 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 was, uh, I went off to Harvard and spent most of my first year making trouble. Um, you know, I kind of got radicalized upon arrival and was involved in the anti-Vietnam movement and uh, was so focused on, on politics um, that I had forgotten about academics. And the day came when you had to de- declare your major for the next year, right? W- what are you going to concentrate in? And I hadn't given it a thought. And by complete chance, I, I had walked out of the Peabody Museum of Ethnology, and with, with my head still kind of swirling with these images of all these dioramas of these shaman wrapped in all the colors of the rainbow, I ran into an acquaintance in the street, and I said, Stuart, what are you going to declare as your major tomorrow? And he said, anthropology. And I said, what's that? And he said, well, you read about Indians. And like Forrest Gump, I said, that'll do. And that's how I signed on in anthropology. And then after about a, uh, a year or two of basically just reading about indigenous peoples and in books, uh, I was restless to, to live amongst them. You know? And I was um, literally in a cafe in Harvard Square with my roommate, who was also a student of anthropology, also from the West. And there was, by complete chance, a National Geographic map of the world right beside us. And suddenly, David looks at the map. He looks at me, and he looks at the map, and he points to the high Arctic. I look at the map, and I watch my left arm rise, and it strikes the northwest Amazon. And I've always said that if I had happened to land on Italy, I might have become a Renaissance scholar. But having decided to go to the Amazon, there was only one man to see, the legendary ethnobotanist Richard Evan Schultes, who... Was the director of the botanical museum, but he was also the man who had sparked the psychedelic era with his discovery. He of,
0: discovered psilocybin. We didn't
1: discover psilocybin. He
0: chemically processed. No, it. No, he
1: was the one who. Um, you know, it's it's a it's a it's a more complicated story. But let me just mention that. You know, so so having decided to go to the Amazon, um, you, you know, you in studying culture, you have to find some metaphor, some vehicle, some way to break down the barrier that exists between you as an outsider and a people with whom you seek to be welcomed as a guest. And so, for example, if it's not like I chose to do ethnobotany, it's that in the Amazon that was the obvious conduit to culture. When later I would work in the Arctic with the Inuit, the metaphor was the hunt, or with Athabascan people, like some of the elders you may, may have met as a little boy when you visited us in Northern British Columbia. You know, when I went to Voodoo, I kinda had another metaphor as a conduit to culture in that setting. And so in a way I I drifted into ethnobotany because, you know, rather than turning up at a remote settlement in the Northwest Amazon and announcing, you know, that that I was there to study them and study their personal lives. I mean, if someone turned up at our door like that and announced that they're, you know, we're here for six months and you're gonna house and feed us and we're here to study your sex life, you'd call the police, right? You know? So you've got to find that kind of conduit to culture. And in the Amazon, the obvious thing was the botanical realm, the realm upon which the people's lives depended, and the realm of which they had such deep and profound understanding. So I I became an ethnobotanist in retrospect, less because I was passionate about plants, although I certainly was um then that was a vehicle, that was a conduit, that was a, the way in, if you, if you will. Yeah. And that's what led me, of course, into the orbit of uh, Professor Schultes.
0: And you were, you were there amidst the giants of the field at, at Harvard. I
1: was really lucky in that, in retrospect, because of Schultes, um, um, I was able to sort of meet so many incredible people. I mean, Albert Hoffman, uh, Gordon Wasson, Sasha he, Shulgin.
0: he created LSD, Albert Hoffman. Well, he didn't create L.C., God okay, created. Quick. I mean,
1: you know, I mean, she, you know, I mean, what what it is is that, um, um, you know, with psychedelics so, um, you know, uh, ubiquitous and 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 people are so familiar with psychedelics these days and with the whole renaissance, you, you can easily forget that there was a time when at least Western science knew very little about these substances, and those who were interested and curious about them were a very small and rather astonishing cadre of characters botanists anthropologists chemists um, uh, phytochemists and so on uh, psychologists writers you know philosophers you know. and um, Schultes really was at the center of all of that and you know the he he again he, he had his beginning in a in one of those moments of serendipity he was he was um Um, From a family in East Boston, his father basically had a small plumbing business and and they they didn't have the money um, to pay for dormitories at Harvard. And he was the first of his family ever to go to college. And he took a job in the most eclectic library at Harvard, which was the Economic Botany Library, the Botanical Museum. And he, he was filing cards for pennies an hour but surrounded by these folios from Brunfels and monographs of distant tribes and accounts of strange poisons. And and he fell away into trance, and he he took the course that had been taught at Harvard longer than any other called Plants and Human Affairs. And uh, his professor was uh, a real libertarian. And so through all the years of prohibition, one of the lab assignments was the obligatory fermenting and distilling of alcohol, which the students then were obliged to drink in copious amounts, you know. But when it came time to these curious plants that were then known as a Fantastica, uh, you know, peyote, uh, uh, yahay, all these, you know. Um, even Professor Ames had his limits, so the students had to do a book report instead. And Schultes had so much homework that he raced to the back of the lab and deliberately chose the thinnest book of all the possible books to cover, put in his satchel, went home to his tenement in East Boston, and that night, botanical history was made, because that thin volume turned out to be the only monograph then available in the English language that described the stunning pharmacological effects of peyote. And was written by a man called Henrik Kluver. And Schulte's read Throughout the night, of these visions of orb like brilliance that descended over the imagination of people exposed to mescaline. And he was just enchanted. And he went back the next day to his professor and said, I have to know this plant. And, and Professor Ames said, Well, you can. First, you must read about it, and then you must experience it. And I think we can get you a grant to do that. And so Schultes read all that spring. Um, you know, works of people like Lumholtz, who was with the Tara Mara and the, and the uh, Wechol, and, um, and, and read of how the, the uh, Comanche, Gwona Parker, in a vision absorbed the peyote into the Great Plains and how it dispersed with a rate of diffusion unprecedented in the history of culture, reaching all the way to the Cree and a hundred societies. And that was, of course, the Peyote cult, or, the, or what became the Native American Church. And then that summer, in an old 1928 Studebaker with a graduate student called Weston LaBar at Yale, an anthropologist, Schultes went bouncing over the dusty roads of Tennessee to get to Indian Country, Oklahoma, where for um, eight weeks of his young life, he ate peyote four and five times a night a week. And he came back, a man transformed. You know, and he came back and he testified in Congress about the rights of Native American people to use peyote as a sacrament. And he wrote his undergraduate thesis on peyote, all quite heady stuff for a kid who had never before been west of the Charles River. And then he was working on his undergraduate thesis on peyote at the Smithsonian, at the Natural History Museum. Actually, it was in the National Herbarium when he stumbled upon the clue that would allow him to solve the greatest mystery in the history of ethnobotany, and that was the identity of these two long-lost sacred Aztec plants, Tejuanacatl, the flesh of the gods, and Ololuiki, the serpent vine. And what he found was a note um, on a herbarium specimen uh, directed toward the late Dr. Rose, who'd been director of the National Herbarium. It came from an unknown German engineer in in Mexico by the name of um, BP Reiko. And the note said, and there had been a famous Smithsonian anthropologist who claimed that Tejuanacatl was peyote. Schultes didn't agree, but he had no way of showing it. And the note from this German engineer said, I understand your man Safford says that Tijuana is peyote, he's an idiot. It's not, it's a mushroom, I've seen it used. Yours sincerely, B.P. Reiko. And Schultes immediately jumped on a, a bus from Mexico City, met Reiko and the two of them took the train south to Oaxaca and then began to trek into the homeland of the Mazatec. And that's when Schultes, uh collected the first specimens of what we now know to be the so-called uh magic mushrooms which came later right and that was the were, event that sparked the psychedelic era
0: yeah these these figures they they didn't discover these substances but they they recorded them in in western tradition for the first right, time exactly
1: and and they but they but they also you know became interlocutors or or you know they 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 brought to light um, these ancient practices and they did so with enormous respect. And I mean, the story of the mushrooms is so fascinating because it's right out of Indiana Jones because there was another team, B.P. Reiko turned out to be an ardent Nazi. And there was another team led by Bernard Bevan, who was Ernst Bevan's brother who later served in Churchill's cabinet. And this was British Secret Service with a young American called Gene Johnson who was later killed in North Africa. Anyway, these two teams were converging on this small little town of Wautla in pursuit of this mystery, and Schultes was the first to actually collect the mushrooms and verify that Tijuanacota was, in fact, a mushroom. And then w- what happened is a war intervened. Schultes went off to the Northwest Amazon. Um, Reiko was murdered. Uh, Johnson, as I said, died in the North African landings. And the whole kind of story um, uh, it sort of went on hold until after the war. And meanwhile, there was this New York banker called Gordon Wasson, who was married to um, a Russian woman, who was a great fungophile, and they had kind of come up with the idea that there was somewhere that people worshiped mushrooms. They didn't know where, or how, or why. They were interested in the Elysian mysteries. Um, they Then they, they suddenly heard from Robert Graves, a poet who was living on Majorca, who sent them Schulte's 1940 paper, an American anthropologist. And this is a part of the story that seems to be kind of left out in the current psychedelic revival where people give all credit to Gordon Wasson for his work with the mushrooms, and he's certainly deservedly so. But but what actually happened is that Graves showed Wasson about Schulte's work. Wasson contacted Schulte, Schulte sent him to work with Maria Savina in, Wa- in Wautla, and then after several expeditions, uh, Wasson was able to participate in a Mushroom Villala uh, with Maria Savina. He wrote it up for Life magazine, an editor picked a snappy title, Seeking the Magic Mushrooms, and the name stuck, and, and, and the kind of psychedelic era had begun. Timothy Leary back at Harvard, I guess, had a subscription to Life magazine because he made his own beeline for, in his case, Cuernavaca, and took the mushrooms. And, and that, Is this
0: around the time you
1: were there as well? It what, was long the time? before I was there. That's before you were there. Yeah, I mean, you know, th- this is all going on. I mean, Wasson went to uh, first con- met, met uh, Schultes about 1953, the year I was born. Mm. And um, and um, uh, Leary's journey in Mexico, I think, was about 1960. 19- 61, 62, something like that, very early on.
0: Hmm. I mean, this atmosphere that you, you, you came of age in at Harvard with these, with these giants of botanical discovery, of psychedelic discovery, must have made great impact on you. You, you went on to explore the world, um, all forms of immersion into far-flung cultures, vanishing cultures, Different forms of psychedelic experience as well. Maybe we'll we'll jump into Haiti first because I believe that's. Well, what before you, you get
1: there, I mean, I think I think I think something worth remembering is that when I first met Schultes, um, if I said to a hundred of my friends, "I'm going to the Amazon," ninety-five wouldn't have known where it is. If if I had said to, I mean, I rem- I remember when I decided to go to the Amazon. I mean, I literally, uh, I mentioned that anecdote about being in that cafe with my roommate, right? Well, having decided to go to the Amazon, there was only one man to see, and I kind of marched up the cha- stairs to Schulte's office. Uh, he opened the door and I said, my name's Wade Davis, I've saved up money in a logging camp, I want to go to the Amazon like you did and collect plants. He didn't ask for my credentials or who I was, what courses I had taken, he just said, well, son, when do you want to go? Mm. And two weeks later, I was in the Amazon. But before going, he he, he had three pieces of advice. He said, don't bother with leather boots because all snakes bite at the neck. And then he said, don't forget to wear a pith helmet because he had not lost his bifocals in 12 years. And the third piece of advice was not to come back without trying ayahuasca. Now, at that time, again, even though this is nineteen seventy-one, seventy-two. Uh, and and the, and the and the and the psychedelic scene is is has been going on for years in the states. By then, almost nobody knew about ayahuasca. It was extraordinarily obscure. So, when I was lucky enough to kind of come into his orbit and um, be part of his lineage, in the sense that there weren't that many of us, you know, there was. But I had two older brothers, Tim Plowman and Andrew Wile. Uh, And there was this kind of incredible cadre of students drawn into the charisma of of Schultes, not really intellectually, because he was a man of action indeed. I don't think I ever had an intellectual conversation with him. He would say things to you like, you know, there's one river you should know, knowing full well that the process of getting to that confluence would involve experiences guaranteed to assure you that if you emerge from the forest alive, You'd be a wiser, more knowledgeable human being. So there, we were doing this work with no, with no, um, with no recognition. You know, it was very much in the same, not dissimilar, in a way. And when I think about it, to how Schultes had operated in the 1930s. You know, I mean, you know, there there, there was no cachet to taking ayahuasca. No one even knew what it was, right? So, in that sense, there was a certain pioneering aspect to it that that echoed, at least, what Schultes had been doing. Um, you know, research for its own sake, you know, uh, exploration for its own sake. Uh, and I was very fortunate to hook up with his real protege, Tim Plowman, for whom Schultes had secured this very large grant to study uh, a plant known to the Inca as the divine leaf of immortality. And that was, of course, coca, the source of cocaine. So... In the 1970s, I guess it was one of the most desirable academic grants—a quarter million dollars—to study coca. And so, with thanks to Schultes introducing me to Tim and me becoming Tim's kind of um, field assistant, that was an extraordinary uh, opportunity when I was still only 20 years old.
0: There's there's 80 or hundreds of different uh, genus of of.
1: Cocoa planter no, no, there's, there's, there's hundreds of species of, species. of the genus Erythroxylum. There are only two cultivated species, each of which has two cultivated varieties.
0: I'm curious about that because it does seem to be a somewhat regular pattern. Um, you know, I think of, I think of mezcal, of which there's many different types of agave, but only a few that sort of reach global commercialization. Or bananas or apples. There's, there's many different Types of all these plants, but it's, it tends to be that only one or two, or rubber, rubber with Schultes and leaf, the leaf blight problem with rubber trees, there's um, really only one type of rubber well, there tree. Well, three
1: that, rubber trees that yield latex, but again, those have never been successfully really uh, cultivated in the, in the Amazon, right? And so they, um, uh, you it know.
0: It seems to be a biological pattern, I guess. I'm curious as to your thoughts on.
1: Well, I think it's you know no no pun intended, but you're kind of comparing apples and oranges. I yeah. mean, like bananas, for example, are propagated vegetatively because a banana seed is is not viable, right? Yeah. So, um, whereas you know rubber, with three different species of the genus Avaea, um, you know, one which is throughout the Amazon basin, and then the other one is largely north of the river, the other south of the river, and these were brought into cultivation and in plantations in Southeast Asia, um, but 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 not, not in a sense not as true cultigens you know i mean It's sort of a defining notion of a cultigen is a plant that doesn't really exist outside of human manipulation if you will or certainly a cultivar and coca coca the fascinating thing about coca is that the it now appears from dna anal- analysis that all four of the cultivated varieties are derived ultimately from the same wild ancestor, a plant that grows around along the um, eastern slopes of the Andes all the way from Colombia to Bolivia. But it's a really remarkable example unprecedented in botany where you know ancient peoples identified this wild sp- uh, plant species and then independently, thousands of miles apart, manipulated it through artificial selection, to domesticate it, and in both instances across a range of that process, developed this incredible reverence for sacred plant, independently domesticated um, and yielding two completely different species of, of domesticated culti- cultigens and four cultivars. It's just, it's just a fascinating story. And
0: it's been, there, there's a study you were part of that I, either you told me about at one point or I read, but the coca leaf increased um, enzymes that allowed for nutrition, nutritional absorption or, or additional calcium.
1: No, what it is, I mean, you know, one of the things that was so remarkable is that a coca, which was obviously revered by the, Inca, and not just the Inca, but every pre-Columbian civilization, um, was, of course, because of its importance, immediately denigrated by the Spanish in the wake of the conquest, until the Spanish discovered they couldn't get the indigenous people to work in the mines without it. So, in 1572, um, Toledo, the Viceroy, legalized coca, having demonized it for 50 years. And um, and and by the 19th century, coca was being celebrated as this extraordinary plant. And then, with the ex- the isolation of cocaine, the first alkaloid to be isolated from a plant was morphine from opi- opium. The second was cocaine from coca. And as cocaine began to be revealed to be problematic, um, even though it still remains are important a very important topical anesthetic. There's no such thing as good and bad drugs; just bad, good and bad ways of using drugs. Um, um, cocaine, coca, became associated with cocaine in the sense that opium was associated with morphine. You know, and so in all that time, efforts to destroy the coca fields, which were really driven mostly by ideology. In other words, when um, when physicians in Lima looked up into the Andes and they saw poor nutrition, poor sanitation, uh, one social pathology after another, there had to be a reason. And because um, issues of economics and class and and land distribution, equity, uh, came too close to challenging the foundations of their own bourgeois lives in Lima, they settle on coca as the ultimate culprit. So the efforts to eradicate coca fields began at least 50 years before there was a problem with illicit cocaine and the rise of the Median cartels. And it had nothing to do with the pharmacology of coca, but the cultural identity of those who revered the plant, right? And so in all those years, when all these physicians completely in opposition to the reports of scientists, scholars, physicians in the 19th century that heralded the properties of coca as a miracle plant. Now suddenly it was demonized as if it was equivalent to cocaine. Well, coca is to cocaine what what, uh, potatoes are to vodka, not comparable. But in all of that time, no one had done the obvious, a nutritional study to try to just find out what this plant really had in it. And when finally Tim Plowman and Andy Weil and Jim Duke did that uh, study as part of our overall um, study of coca in the 70s, what they found was really interesting. I mean, yes, it had a small amount of cocaine in it, um, absorbed benignly uh, in the mucous membranes of the mouth, a a mild stimulant, um, very different than the salt that is cocaine when it's extracted, um, in a laboratory, uh, but also coca had all these other properties. It was just chock full of vitamins, uh, full of nutrients. Uh, it had enzymes which enhance the body's ability to digest carbohydrate at a high elevation. It had um, 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 more calcium than any plant that ever been assayed by science, which made it perfect for a diet that traditionally lacked a dairy product. And so, in this kind of one elegant assay that could have been done at any time in the previous sixty years, uh, Tim and Jim Duke put into stark profile these efforts to eradicate the traditional fields, and 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 show that this was a plant that had been used with no evidence of toxicity, let alone addiction, um, for all of its history. And I, and I think this touches upon Ted. Part of what I do is 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 I've always been an activist. I've always been mission driven. You know the 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 you know the the um, I, I'm not I'm not really just interested in collecting in that case collecting plants to make a scientific study. You know I, I don't I, I kind of grew up um, heavily influenced as well not just by Professor Schultes but by my anthropology tutor and friend David Maber Lewis who had created cultural survival and he he in a very kind of Boasian way he saw activism as critical to the mission of anthropology. You know. Um, You know, it's like um, Ruth Benedict, the great student of Franz Boas, said the purpose of anthropology is to make the world safe for human differences. So in all the work I've done, there's always been that element, you know, I mean, I went to Haiti, not simply to try to find the drugs, quote unquote, used to make zombies, I went to examine a phenomenon, the Haitian zombie that had been used in a explicitly racist way to denigrate a people in their incredible religion. And try to make sense out of sensation, you know, You know. I mean, You know. why is it uh, that when we talk of the great religions of the world, Africa's left out? How did we possibly come to see voodoo as something evil and black magic when the word just is a phone word from Dahomey that means spirit or God? And then when you actually peel back to the, 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 the reality of voodoo, it's a quintessentially democratic faith, you know, that… The believers have direct access to the divine. I mean, Haitians used to always say, "You white people go to church and speak about God. We dance in the temple and become God." Right. So, and the same thing with coca. It's not. It's not. It's not just to. Uh, it's not enough in my mind to delineate the, I don't know, the phylogeny of the cultivated. You know, of the the wild species, or even do a nutritional study. You you have to you have to build the argument that denying the people of the Andes coca is not like denying coffee to the Turks or beer to the Germans or or tea to the English. No, it's, if you understand the role that coca plays in not just daily life, but in ritual life, in spiritual life, to deny people coca is um, an act of cultural genocide. So for me, you know, my mission has always been um, there's always been a kind of a political uh, or activist kind of angle to it. Yeah, i so many- my work with languages. You know, I mean, yeah. I mean, just waking people up to the fact that uh, you know we're living through an era where half the languages of the world aren't being spoken to children, and no one's really until relatively recently. And and and, and uh, certainly, I was one of the early voices in this. You yeah. Know. What
0: do you think is lost when a language? disappears forever.
1: Well, a language isn't just vocabulary or grammar. A, a language is a flash of the human spirit. It's a vehicle through which the soul of every culture comes into the material world. Every language I once wrote is an old growth forest of the mind, um, an ecosystem of, uh, you know, possibilities, a watershed of thought. You know, one of the probably the the, the most important. Uh, scientific revelations of our lifetimes had two things. First, Christmas Eve 1968, Apollo going around the dark side of the moon, emerging to see not a sunrise or a moonrise, but an earthrise, right? And for the first time, we really understood that we live on a finite planet, as the astronauts famously said, floating in the velvet void of space. And and that moment's going to be remembered for ten thousand years. And you know, until that moment, uh, not a single country had a ministry of environment. You know, um, you, you know, until that moment, just getting people to stop throwing garbage out of the car window was a great environmental victory. No one spoke of the biosphere or biodiversity. Now those are terms that are part of the language of school children, right? But the other, the other great revelation, epiphany, also came about at the end of a great journey, but not into space, but in the very fiber of our beings. And in our lifetimes, geneticists have finally proven it to be true. What philosophers have always pondered as an impossibility, and that is the fact that we really are all brothers and sisters. And I don't mean that in the spirit of hippie ethnography. I mean, quite literally, we know from genetic analysis um, that the genetic endowment of humanity is a continuum. Race is an absolute fiction. Um, we're all cut from the same genetic cloth. We're all descendants of a very small number of people uh, who, either, well, some who stayed in Africa, of course, but those who also left Africa and embarked on this incredible kind of diaspora that brought the human spirit over 2,500 generations, um, 40,000 years, to every corner of the world. But the real message of that is that if we're cut from the same genetic cloth, we all share the same genius. And how that genius is then exploited or, or, or developed is just a matter of choice. So that old Victorian idea that there was a hierarchy of culture, and this came right out of Darwin. If species evolved, surely cultures evolved. And the whole idea of social Darwinian thinking, which was birthed by Herbert Spencer in anthropology... Imagine human cultures as an ascending evolutionary process of development that, curiously enough, left us at the top of the heap. Right? Yeah. And 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 you know it was even delineated by people like uh, you know Tyler and religion and and and, you know and and uh, Morgan that you know we went from the savage to the barbarian to the civilized of the Strand of London, right?
0: And well, there's an assumption that technological development is. Well, that was part
1: of the game. The part the part of the game is that because we were, because our, <clears throat> our achievement was, it was, a, it, it, it was a stacked deck. Because we were particularly clever when it came to technological wizardry, we defined that as a definition of achievement, right? And that helped place us at the apex of a pyramid that went down the slopes to the so called savages of the world. Well, that has been absolutely shattered both by modern anthropology, but also by this these revelations of genetics. And it shows that the whole idea of a hierarchy of cultures, clearly um, not just untrue, but kind of artifact of the 19th century is irrelevant to our lives. <clears throat> it's a notion that clergymen had then that the earth was just 6,000 years old. And what this means, of course, is that the other peoples of the world aren't failed attempts at being modern. They're not failed attempts at being us. Every culture is a unique answer to a fundamental question. What does it mean to be human and alive? And when they answer that question, they do so in the 7,000 voices of humanity, and those voices collectively become our human repertoire. You know, one of the, um, you know, how you use our collective genius is just a matter of choice. And, And technological wizardry has brought us great things, but it's also created great dilemmas. And once you recognize that these other people are, for example, the aboriginal people of Australia, who may focus on the resonance of myth, you know, unraveling myth as being a priority of the culture, or whatever, they're not doing it because they're dumb. It's because it's how they've chosen to live. And yeah. and so when you look at um, sophistication of knowledge around that <clears throat> domain is more important right. to them. It's and, a, a priority question. And once you once you recognize that, then then um, um y- you know, you realize that every culture really does have something to say. Each deserves to be heard. And and then you can begin to realize that we don't exist outside of time and history. We're a product of both. And so you ask the obvious question, how is it that we in the West treat the environment the way we do? Well, it's, it's not hard to figure out. I mean, in the, in the Enlightenment, um, in our quest to liberate ourselves from the tyranny of absolute faith, <clears throat> which is understandable in the moment, we cast away all notions of magic, myth, mysticism, and critically metaphor, to the extent that, as Saul Bellow said, science made a house cleaning of belief— um, and the idea that the flight of a bird could have meaning was ridiculed. And out of that perspective came great things, the scientific method, allopathic medicine, we put a man in the moon. But it also led to a point where, where um, only things that could be measured and seen and quantified could exist. And how did that have implications? Well, it's a way we began to see the world. You know, like I was raised to believe that a mountain was a pile of rock ready to be mined. Well, that makes me different than my godchildren in Peru raised to believe that a mountain in the Andes is an Apu deity that will direct their destiny. Now, it's not about who's right and who's wrong. I was raised to believe the forests of British Columbia existed to be cut. That was the foundation of scientific forestry. It's what I was taught to practice as a logger in the woods. Well, that may be different than my friend's amongst the First Nations, like the Kwakwaka'wakw, who believed that the forests were the abode of hukuk and the crooked beak of heaven and the cannibal spirits, you know, that would be embraced during the Hamatsa initiation. Again, it's not about who's right and who's wrong, it's how the belief system mediates the interaction between human beings and the natural environment with profoundly different consequences for the ecological footprint. I wrote a book called The Wayfinders where The publisher put a snappy title on that I wasn't too pleased about, called Why Ancient Wisdom Matters in the Modern World. I didn't like the title because it implied that these indigenous cultures we're talking about were somehow vestigial when they're not, you know, and um, uh, uh, as if they're fading away when they're not. They're being driven out of existence, right? And um, uh, But... But in trying to answer that subtitle question, I came up with two words, climate change. Again, not to suggest we go back to a pre-industrial past or that anyone be kept from the brilliance and, and products of, human, uh, of modernity, but rather to suggest that the very existence of all these other different ways of living, of being, of thinking, puts a lie to those of us who say we can't change uh, when all we know, we must change the fundamental way in which we inhabit the planet. So it's that it's that you know, people who think you know, oh the, you know these societies quaint and colorful, you know, destined to fade away as we roar on. Well, that's actually not true. We can't afford to roar on as we're doing, and and these societies are here to we lose important knowledge. It's not just you lose a knowledge. It's 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 not about that. It, it's it's that it, it liberates us from the straitjacket of believing that we have no options. That, you know, oh, that's nice and quaint, but let's be real. You know, we really do have to grind up that mountain because we need the nickel, right? Well, we don't, you know, or or if we do, we, we can at least pay attention to what it means for society to believe something very, very different. In other words, the human experience is not distilled in our ideology, and it's not distilled in the Western, the, universal, ubiquitous success of the Western way of thinking, the consequences of which are evident to all of us, should not suggest that it's the norm in the human experience. In fact, when viewed through the anthropological lens, it appears to be highly anomalous. Most societies live not with a kind of extractive model in mind, but with a with a relationship to the natural world and each other, for that matter, based on reciprocity. some iteration of a basic idea that you know, uh, that the the earth owes its bounty to human beings and human beings owe their fidelity to the earth. This is why most of our kind of our concepts of the ecological native are so, are so kind of well-intentioned, but misguided. You know, indigenous people are not sentimental, nor are they weakened by nostalgia. There's not a lot of room for either uh, in, in the harsh winds of the Arctic or in the slopes of the high Himalaya. In my experience, indigenous people have created a kind of a mystique of the earth based on, not based on an idea of being close to it in a Thoreauian way or, or being of it in a kind of Rousseauian Sauvage way, but on a far more subtle intuition, the idea that the Earth itself can only exist because it's filtered through the human imagination. So, so you know, um, um, plants and animals aren't seen as just props on the stage upon which only the human drama unfolds. Uh, human beings are engaged in an ongoing, dynamic, reciprocal exchange with the natural world. I mean, societies that I've been with, like the Badasana and the Makuna in the Northwest Amazon, you know, arguably their most profound cultural insight is the notion that plants and animals are just people in another world, of another dimension of reality. Or if you go to the Sierra Nevada in Colombia and, and spend time with the Mamos, you know, the sun priests of the Arawakos and the Kogi and the Wiwa, I mean, they literally believe their prayers maintain the cosmic balance of the world. Now, again, it's not whether that's right or not. What we should be paying attention to is the consequences of those beliefs which means that the people have lived in what can only be described as a kind of harmonious engagement with the natural world for most of their history. And we continue to tear that forest apart. You mm-hmm. think
0: ritualized um, tradition around psychotropic substances in these cultures is an essential component of what you're describing no, right now? No,
1: no, because I mean, one of the one of the um um one of the fascinating things about psychedelics from nature is that there's a there's a very strange element to the distribution of the 120 or so psychoactive substances identified by science from the plant realm 95 percent are from the americas not because the forests of Equatorial west africa or southeast asia are depauperate And not because people haven't explored those forests for biodynamic properties. In West Africa, the manipulation of folk poisons is probably the most ubiquitous trait of material culture. It's that the use of these psychoactive substances are just one way of satisfying what is a universal human desire to invoke some technique of ecstasy, to soar away on the wings of trance, to get into metaphysical realms where deeds of medicine and, and, and spirit can be worked, right? And so, in the Americas, the vehicle to the gods um, uh, is, is often these plants. But if you go to African culture, like in Haiti, the Haitians used to say, you, you, you white people go to church and speak about God. We dance in the temple and be, uh, Indians, indi- yeah, Indians, they would say, eat their magic plants and speak to God and we dance in the temple and become god. And in other words there were African ritual through spirit possession was another avenue to the divine. And so so it's not it's not like but where where these psychoactive substances I think can be of of, of utility is in the ultimate healing that we need to do uh with the earth itself. And what I mean by that is that that um, it's all well and good for me to uh, describe these belief systems that do reflect kind of reciprocal relations that are meaningful and true and that affect human behavior in these cultures. but it's not as if you and I can just take these beliefs on like a coat um that's not how culture works, you know but what we can do is pay attention to our relationship with the natural world and in my opinion the most you know, I think that the, the use of psychedelics has, and its potential, the potential, has been to some extent exaggerated, as often happens when new movements come along or revitalized. Certainly some psychedelics, and MDMA is a perfect example, are incredibly useful for post-traumatic stress, for couples therapy, and so on. I think some substances, psilocybin, perhaps useful for end-of-life care, not allowing you to not, not not eliminating a fear of death, but helping people come to terms with it. But to me, the biggest value in these substances is is th- their ability to instantaneously, viscerally, sensually reconnect us with the natural world. You cannot take San Pedro cactus and not come away with a more deeper appreciation of the natural world. I mean, one of the one of our dilemmas is that people are so disconnected from it. I mean. Kids all over America know the lyrics of hundreds of their popular musical tunes. I bet not one American in 10,000 knows the formula of photosynthesis. You know? I mean, the simple—that's the formula of life. The fact that, you know, uh, you know, wa- water can come together with carbon dioxide to create carbohydrate, the, f- um, the food that we eat— and oxygen, the air that we breathe, all but sparked by photons of light from the sun. Christmas, that that's the greatest. And miracle. the efficiency
0: of it. I find this incredible you know, with respect to solar versus photo. I mean, solar energy, a solar panel, is our closest approximation of photosynthesis. And we can get to twenty percent efficiency at, at best. We're we're not even close to what nature does within a within a cell. And we need all of
1: these large but you know, I mean, I in my opinion, no one should be able to run for office if they can't explain photosynthesis. Yeah. But so, so you know, I think, I think that that's. I mean, I feel that um, you know, people, you know, it, it's so funny. People, you know, say you know, do, you know. I remember our parents, uh, you know, often saying, uh, "Don't take these substances; you'll never come back the same." And our poor parents didn't understand that was the whole bloody point was not to come back the same right and i i can say with great confidence that i wouldn't write the way i write i wouldn't think the way i think i wouldn't treat women the way i treat women i wouldn't appreciate the natural world as i do had i not taken psychedelics
0: the impact is profound i've been um taking ketamine of late to treat depression by the way it's been uh very helpful
1: i've heard i've got a friend of mine who's had serious problems with depression for much of her life and um she says the only thing that has actually helped her is ketamine i've never taken it so i don't know
0: it's been profoundly helpful there's a lot of research coming out of late that makes it look like a bit of a miracle for depression in certain contexts but um it's it's a it's a blocker it's an antagonist of certain Neuroreceptor sites that um, ndMA, I, I might not have the acronym exactly right, but it's a neurochemical that people know to be essential for neuroplasticity. and it seems to be functioning as an antagonist for receptor sites of that neurochemical, which is a bit paradoxical. Mm. Um, and they're just starting to to do brain studies and develop a better understanding. But subjectively, empirically, when people ask, you know, how are you doing with respect to suicidal thoughts and serious um, symptoms of depression, ketamine assisted therapy is having a profound impact and and effect. I've had a thought for a little while now that ancient cultures um, and and contemporary cultures that are disconnected from the West have been treating trauma and depression and various um, psychic distress Uh, through traditional psychedelic experiences throughout time and that we've forgotten or lost sight of that. And that these substances, like Schultes, your mentor, suggested that they should be an essential tool in the toolkit of Western medicine. And it seems like we're just starting to circle back around to that.
1: Yeah. And I think that's a really profoundly hopeful development. I mean, given the extent to which these substances were demonized and, and uh, got caught up in the whole war on drugs, which the war on drugs was not just a misguided thing, it was such a cynical thing, you know, it was Richard Nixon, who actually, as we know from Ehrlichman's memoir, really didn't care anything about drug use. He just wanted to cleave off a group of people African-Americans, drug users, hippies, um, to create the barriers around his new cohort called the um, silent majority in order to win the 1972 election, right? And we've been dealing with the consequence of the war on drugs ever since. A trillion dollars spent more people in more places using worse drugs than ever before. But, you know, I think the thing is about, there's, there's no such we tend to generalize about quote-unquote indigenous people, you know, and their use of these substances, but it, it's, it can be very, very different. I mean, you can you can have uh, individual corunderos um, in, uh, using these substances to diagnose and treat illness, um, but in my experience, especially in the Northwest Amazon, the use of yahé is much more about community solidarity. You know, for example, the. the you know, the, 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 there's a very strong sense that um, human beings um, are responsible for the energetic balance of the world, right? And and so they'll go through these incredible rituals where all adult men for three days and three nights will take ya- Yahé, and they don't become just images of the ancestors, they become the ancestors, and they fly off to the sacred places and reaffirm in that Ritual gesture, um, their sense of obligation and responsibility for the maintenance of the well-being of the world. I mean, this is a a huge thing. Is you know, we for all the damage um, we've done to the environment, we think of uh, human beings therefore as a problem. But in indigenous cultures, in my experience, human beings are never the problem. We're the only solution, because it is only through us that the world's, the natural world can kind of come into being. But with that going back to this theme of reciprocity we have obligations right and 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 those obligations include um maintaining a kind of dialogue with the natural world i mean in the northwest amazon a hunter doesn't just go into the forest to kill an animal you've got to go to the shaman the shaman's got to go to the animal masters the case has to be made the promises kept the the, the the ritual exchange, whatever it is made, and so on. And only then can the hunter enter the realm of the jaguar. And, you know, you know.
0: I saw you say in a talk 11 years ago that uh, you believed that the Amazon was home to civilizations with millions of people in them, that it was a dense... Well,
1: we know for, I mean, when all you have to do is read the journals or Reliana, the first... Uh, Spaniard with his chronicler, um, the scribe, Caspar de Caravajal, who went down in 1541, I think it was, and he went through a land that was just densely populated with people. And now people, scholars, think that maybe the population was at least 10 million. And, you know, every day, especially with LIDAR, people are discovering throughout the lowlands last of, year. of Bolivia and Brazil, yeah. um, you know, the of settlements. Look, look what's been discovered. Um, in the Petén of Guatemala, the extent of Mayan ruins. I remember, <coughs> excuse me, one of the one of the great ruins that's come to light now, an old friend of mine, Richard Hansen, who's been working at a place called Mirador, which was an early Mayan site. You know, Tikal is like 800 AD or something like, you know, classic Maya, as it used to be called, and Mirador was more around the time of Christ. But I remember when I first visited Mirador, you had to trek through the jungle to get there. And as you're going through the forest, um, you suddenly find yourself walking through topography. And then you realize, um, as you hear the sounds of the picks of the tomb robbers, the vaqueros, that everything, every gradient you're walking up is man-made, right? And at that time, Mirador had something like five or six of the seven tallest pyramids in the world. And um, the, the base of one of them was bigger than the Pentagon's base uh, in circumference. And now, and, and uh, that was called El Merador because people, pilots used it to orient themselves as they flew around the Peten. It was this man-made structure on the Guatemalan-Mexican border in the Peten forest that just soared above the canopy of the forest. And now the LIDAR, work has shown like just cities of hundreds. I mean. This is quite recent.
0: Like just Very last recent. year was the yeah. first discovery yeah. in, um, in Bolivia of a, of a large structure that seems to be the same area that the individual searching for the last lost city of Z, um, the city of gold got, got lost in. I mean, it <laughs> seems like maybe they found the lost city of Z.
1: Maybe. Who knows? I mean, I don't know about that story, but, um, but clearly the Amazon had a very large population of yeah. people living in it.
0: Yeah. Um, I, w- I wanna see so you were mentioning that advocacy is a is a through line here in your story and who you are and how you approach all of these things. The story of the Spazzisi, um, your work for, for 10 years, um, attempting to stop mining and um, coal bed methane projects in that area was quite successful, um, it, it worked. It stopped those projects um, from happening It Shell, rescinded their uh, lease, land lease rights. Um, how did that all come about? And I guess what I'm really curious about, because a lot of people want to have impact on climate, on environmental degradation. A lot of people want that to be there impact that they can have with their lives but don't necessarily know how to be effective um it's pretty rare i think to be as effective as you were in those projects
1: well we won some we lost some you know we did we did encourage the good people at shell to abandon their their tenure for the a million acres of the headwaters but we also lost todigan mountain to a, a rather unimpressive mining company called imperial metals so we have an open pit mine within you know seven kilometers of our of our fish camp, you know. But I, I think um one thing I feel strongly about is they're never enemies are only solutions. And I also think that polemics and are never persuasive. Um but storytellers can change the world. And I think what moves people is narrative. And um, you know, in the case of the Sacred Headwaters um, campaign, one of the things that was kind of most inspiring about it was there wasn't a single environmental group involved. It was all the local Taltan people and a handful of us who lived in the valley, and and um, and 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 the courage, in particular, of the Iskit women, but part of the magic of that campaign was the very term sacred headwaters you know language has has um has has great meaning you know um you said the pope
0: wouldn't drill for oil in the sistine chapel but he still drives a car
1: well yeah exactly (laughs) i mean in that case the, the the curious thing is is um i mean you may have heard of the great bear rainforest right yeah Well, I flew over that damn coast a hundred times growing up, and I never saw a great bear. But Ian McAllister, this wonderful character, just came up with, because of the Kermode bear. The white bear. The white bear. He just came up with that term, and suddenly it was an organizing principle. And one of the things interesting about the Sacred Headwaters is the actual term came about I mean, we had been living up there a long time, and all those friends of ours—outfitters and fish guides and um, um, hunting guides and so on—you um, know—we had fought fought off one mega development project after another, most of which um, collapsed under the weight of their own kind of inefficiencies and stupidities. Um, but when when the the the, the headwaters thing started. You know, we, we there were. I mean, four or five major industrial initiatives in this area, and I remember I, um, I, by chance, I flew back to our lodge from the Spatsisi and a uh, friends' float plane, and uh, I just happened to fly over the the Klapan Valley, which is what we now call the Sacred Headwaters, and. It just dawned on me, I don't know why it took so long, that three of our greatest salmon rivers in British Columbia, and if you come up the coast of British Columbia, you have the Fraser that enters the sea at uh, Vancouver, and then you um, get to the, uh, uh, the, the Skeena, the Nass, the Stikine, the uh, Taku, and the um, Tachachini, right? And then the Yukon border. And um, Three of those rivers, the Nass, the Skeen, and the Stikine, have their headwaters within spitting distance of each other, practically. Very close. And a fourth river, the Finlay, which gives rise to the Mackenzie, which flows into the Arctic, is also in that kind of rugged knot of mountains. And I flew over this, and I got up from my dock. I was thinking about that, and I I went to the fire, where a friend of mine, Guja, a major figure in the Haida, an old friend of mine, and my friend Oscar Dennis, who was a... Uh, a leader of the Taltan, were having this huge argument about Raven. Like, who owns Raven? And of course, the Haida are the kind of princes of the coast. And Oscar was saying, you you arrogant Haida, you know, you. I won't use the language that he was using. Um, you think Raven would be born in a clamshell? Are you out of your mind? And of course, the Taltan believe Raven came out of a basaltic formation at the confluence of the Tolten and Stikine River is where you see today this obvious depiction of a raven in basaltic columns, right? And, uh, you know, Guja would counter, you, you know, you useless Tolten, you were never any good, you know, you think a raven would be in a bloody rock face in your country? And, all, and I and I sort of said, you know, fellas, I, I don't really want to get involved in the conversation, but uh, I just want to mention, you know, I just flew in over these uh, headwaters and kind Of, like, sacred, you know, like the how, how amazing this accident of geography that these and each of those rivers, of course, were the life way or the life line of these great civilizations of this of, of, of the coast. You know, this Stikine was the homeland of the Taltan and the Clinket at the mouth, and the Skeena, the um, the Getsu, the Gitsan, the Wetsuaten, the Heisla, and away the um, even the Heidek is a salmon run past their islands. And of course, the Nas was the homeland of the Nishka. So, you know, it's kind of amazing these rivers born so close to each other, you know. And then somehow this idea filtered back to the community and the women started picking it up, you know. And the interesting thing is, is if the concept of the sacred headwaters had just been seen as a slogan, it wouldn't have had any power. But the word sacred, the word sacrifice comes from the Latin to make sacred. And when the women then began to blockade the one dirt road that got into that incredibly vast hinterland, um, with their sacrifice, they kind of sanctified the notion. And the key thing is that once the First Nations started using the concept, the sacred headwaters, it was no longer a white guy's notion. And And the fascinating thing, it wasn't just me, it was my other friend. People were, it was in the air kind of thing. I'm not in the slightest way trying to take credit for anything, it's irrelevant. But what what happened then, the fascinating thing, is that had the government been more um, acute, or even industry, and had they challenged that very phrase, sacred headwaters, because on the face of it, it's not an indigenous notion, right? Mm. Because there's no one more place that's more sacred to another for the Dalton. But they didn't. And I used to always say in those early days, the minute the government and, and industry refers to this area, not as a Klappan, but as a sacred headwaters, we've won. And that's exactly what happened. And and we were able to... <laughs> that's so tactical,
0: though. I mean, I think it's... Yeah. a Relatively small number of people. It'd be like um, a, a handful but, of storytellers and some indigenous um, folks saving Anwar. for instance. Well, I mean, we, and
1: we also, you know, we're facing down the big... What I think was the biggest corporation in the world, Royal Dutch Shell. And there was a... There was a great moment at TED uh, where Chris Anderson, the curator of TED, had seen some some of the images we did in the Sacred Headwaters book. I mean, that was a whole nother story, is, is that we 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 needed to, you, you know, that country is so remote. I mean, our lodge is seven hours from the nearest town, and most Canadians love the idea of the north and they never go there. I mean, our own premier, the equivalent of a governor uh, of, of the province, Gordon Campbell at the time, Raised in Vancouver, raised in BC, twi- t- two term governor or premier, we call it. Um, he had never visited a quarter of the province. He had never been there, right? And you got, you know, again, we're talking about rather remote areas. I mean, um, if you think about in the lower 48, the furthest you can get away from a maintained road is 20 miles in Yellowstone. Well, in the northwest quadrant of British Columbia, and BC is bigger than California, Oregon, Idaho, and Washington state put together. In that northwest quarter, the size of Oregon, there's one road, right? And that's where we are. So, we, you know, we had no constituency. It's one of the largest know. pristine wildernesses left in oh, the yeah. world. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. And when I, I first got up there in the 70s, when I was, uh, got the job as the first park ranger in Spats Easy Wilderness Park, and it was a, f- a roadless wilderness park the government had just created in 1975. They didn't really know what was in it, so my job description was... Um, wilderness assessment and public relations. And in two four-month seasons, I think I saw 10 people. So there was no one to relate publicly to, you know. But I remember at the TED conference, by chance, Chris allowed me to have eight minutes to present these images. And um, I just before going to the stage, I heard that the head of shell for all the Americas was in the audience you know, propped up probably on one side by Al Gore and another side by Jeff Bezos. Who knows the kind of people that went to TED in those days. The heyday of TED. Yeah, yeah and I, I just killed him with kindness in this speech. I never said anything negative. I just said, you know, I just really would like our good friends the good people at Shell not just to leave this valley, but to stay with us and move forward together as we create the biggest protected area in the history of Canada. And then afterwards, there was a... A, 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 a private luncheon uh, sponsored, I think Wired Magazine at the time. And because I had just spoken, the conversation, and, and, and the You fe- said,
0: I rewatched it prior to that. You said at the end of this TED Talk, you you know, eight minute, you said, uh, and if anyone would like to help me in this, please see me after the talk, yeah. which is a pretty, <laughs> you know, You're not you enlisted to do that the time. support of- <laughs> Yeah.
1: I, I, I mean, I, there wasn't, I mean, I mean, at the end, the funny thing about that campaign is at the end of it, um, you know, we, it, it was really a quixotic campaign, and um, I mean, one part of it was the book, and, and the idea of getting great photographers up there, and showing the world what the country really looked like, and in, in a fascinating way, showing the tall ten, the beauty of their own country, because of course, you're talking about a, a valley the size of Switzerland, uh, just the stikine. Um and uh You know, Taltan people don't get to go up in helicopters at magic hours. So we were able to kind of, with the imagery, very powerfully make a case of how special that country was. And then also we were able to give words uh, and and allow the the indigenous leaders and just ordinary men and women of the Taltan a platform you know the first time their language or their voices had been in print in that way and that that was really very very powerful and I'll tell you one thing i've I've really learned I absolutely believe this is that the the the, the cultural survival and cultural revival and um, the improvements in the conditions of First Nations certainly in Canada which have been, for all kinds of reasons, historically dreadful. Um, in every case, when people resist and stand up for their land, it results in kind of a cultural renewal mm. and the, the empowerment that that represents. And so, <clears throat> yeah, I'm really, really proud of my my role in that campaign.
0: You should be. It's I think it's exceedingly rare to have that kind of an impact on that large of a land.
1: But you know the interesting thing again. You know, uh, no enemies, only solutions. I remember after that luncheon when I when I spoke with the Shell fellow. I can't even remember his name now. He was there with his wife, and he was very nice. And while he spoke at the luncheon, he he basically said, and this is a, almost a year before any announcements were made by the British Columbia government. But he basically said, you know, I didn't know the country was so beautiful. I didn't know it was so important he had no to idea. he had no idea. I didn't know it was that beautiful. I didn't know how important it was to the local people, Taltan especially. And um and you know, I'll tell you what, it's not worth our bother. You know, why would we enter that hornet's nest? We don't want to We we're not bad. You know, we're not evil. We're, you know, we just, you know, why yeah. would we, and I and felt. Natural gas prices were declining. And natural gas prices. And he was honest enough to use, list that as one of his reasons. And I left that luncheon really convinced that we had won, although it never became clear until about a year and, and a half later. But. You well, know, what you was went the some...
0: mechanics of it becoming clear? Were, were there, were there deals being brokered between the government and shit? Like, Yeah, I think. I how think did they, that all
1: happen? Well, it's very complicated and it wasn't such a nice story. I mean, basically. The um,
0: Negotiation never is.
1: <laughs> there was, I mean, basically, I think what happened is um, the, the, the Toltan and the people at Iskiz, some of whom have different ethnic backgrounds, were absolutely committed to protecting the Klapan, Klabona. That, that's, that was their nursery. That's where the, That was just their ancient place. And um, the government wanted to develop the, that quadrant of the province, and there were, at that time, about five or six major industrial plays um, in process, right? And so the government um, be- financed the extension of the power line because there was no source of power and there's no grid. We weren't connected to the grid. And so they went ahead with this project to build a transmission line at huge expense, and of course, typically, the expense doubled from 400 million to 800 million. And, and then, as a power line is being built, one by one, these projects implode for various reasons, you know, inefficiencies, market conditions, whatever. And at the end of the day, and of course, Shell pulling out of the headwaters, the anthracite deposit, them being chased out. And at the end of the day, um, the there was only one standing Project and that was uh, open pit copper and gold mine on Todigun Mountain right above our lodge where you visited and Todtigan is happened to be the home of the highest po- greatest population of stone sheep in the world absolutely stunning place the epicenter of the Stikine Valley and that's where I came up with that line drilling for oil or or mining that would be like mining Sistine Chapel and um, and I think at the same time the tall ten you know, being being native isn't licensed to be poor, and so, you know, I think the government basically cut a deal with the tall ten. will we'll yield on the sacred headwaters, but we want um, we must have a mine because if they didn't, the problem is if they if they didn't have that mine, they would have built a billion dollar power line to nowhere. And the last time something like that happened in Canada, it brought down the government.
0: Uh, what What do you mean? What was that?
1: Well, in the 1970s, the, the, there was an arbitrary decision to build an extension of the British Columbia Railroad to open up this northwest quadrant of the mm. province. And they picked an arbitrary destination called Dees Lake, which at the time had only two rundown former Hudson Bay cabins on it, right? And it was kind of like, if we build it, they will come. And they ended up spending close to a billion dollars in the 1970s over oh, a lot of money. Yeah. And without completing the railway, so it's today the most uh, most expensive mountain biking terrain in the world, right? And uh, yeah. and it got it got more complicated than that, Ted. I mean the the Imperial Medals um, uh, Imperial Metals was about to go under and was being propped up by a guy called Murray Edwards, who was a big player in the tar sands. He was also the owner of the Calgary Flames. NHL hockey team. And by the end of the day, he basically owned this company, right, Imperial Metals. And when the conservative political leader, Liberal Party, but a conservative party in Canada, in the provinces, um, was running for election, she reversed a setback in the polls with a bunch of money that he raised for her in Calgary, right? And then this company, Imperial Metals, which owned one other mine in British Columbia, at a place called Mount Polly, and their tailings empowerment um, broke. And it turned out to be the biggest environmental disaster in the history of mining in Canada. It was a huge thing, billions of dollars of toxic waste going into billions of liters of toxic waste going into the Quenelle Lake, which is one of the headwaters of the um, Fraser River, the big salmon run. And, um, Everybody thought, well, my God, this has got to slow down the development of Red Chris." I mean, until they at least figure out what went wrong at Mount Polly. But no, it, in a perverse way, it, it, it fast-tracked the Red Chris mine on Toddigan with the dubious rationale that Imperial needed the money from the new mine to pay for the cost of cleaning up the old mine, which of course, as you can imagine, they never did. And so the Toddigan uh, mine was fast-tracked by the government. And it was really fast-tracked, because that government had to have a mine. If they hadn't had a mine, they would have built this power line with nothing to use the power, basically, yeah. right? So, it was incredibly corrupt. So, even as we, quote-unquote, won in the sacred headwaters, it was a bitter defeat on Tottenham Mountain. But in retrospect, you know, as I say, you know, being being um, Native is not, a, uh, First Nations is not a license to be poor. and. Interesting thing, it seems to have happened, although, you know, um, one can only pray that the tailings of empowerment will not go the way of the previous mine. But the combination of the pride that's come from securing the sacred headwaters, you know, which is a vast area, and then the economic stability that's come from people getting jobs in this mine where they near close to the community. I think together the two things have kind of really helped the community. So, you know, Mm. you never know, you know, you you just, that's
0: the double-edged sword of economic development. I I think of Mustang, Nepal, I went there on a bunch of different expeditions and China was building a road through it. And there's a lot of contestation of the economic development that that road would, uh, would create. It would, it would potentially end the culture. It was a horse culture, one of the last great horse cultures and with the road and pool halls and, Chinese, uh, trucking stops and things of that nature, the culture would be eroded. Um, but when I asked people, um, like the the nephew of the king and some other people we were with, they wanted the economic opportunity at the same time. So it's,
1: these you things know, are tricky. I, yeah, they are tricky, you know, and I, 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 um, I think advice for young people is, you know, I, um, we get so strident and, um, then we get so disappointed when we lose. And my father wasn't a religious man. He was broken by the war. I never saw the inside of a church in his presence. But he did believe in good and evil. And he used to, say to me, son, there's good and evil in the world. Take your side and get on with it. And it was very wise because we have this kind of thing in Christianity that if we only work hard enough, good's gonna triumph over evil. You know, the Christ child will triumph over the fallen archangel, the devil. Well, As my father would say, "Ain't going to happen." And what he meant is that you pick your side, don't expect to win, then you won't be disappointed when you lose, and you know what? You'll keep fighting. And to me, it's a little bit like the Buddhist notion of the pilgrim. You know, it's like uh, the goal of the pilgrim is not a place; it's a state of mind. And I, I, I've certainly found that not expecting to win or or not demonizing. The, your some opponent has allowed me to fight harder in a way. I, I remember a funny story. I was um I was it's not, kind
0: of apolitical. I wanna I want to hear sir story, but you kind of take an apolitical
1: No, not apolitical. No, no. Very much political, but but not indulgent. Like if I lose, if if we lost if we lost Totigan Mountain. So we lost Tottenham Mountain. Am I going to live the rest of my life angry about that? Mm-hmm. Am I going to try to find out who amongst my friends in the tall town I see. are working? No, it's there. It exists. It is. You know, I, I remember a, a lesson. of I was once ambushed on a TV talk show, news show in British Columbia because they had on the same interview... A man called Jack Monroe, who was the head of the IWA, which was the, the union for the woodworkers, both in the mills and also in the forest, right? And he was probably the most powerful man in British Columbia at that point, more powerful than the premier in a way. Massive man, right? And he was furious. Because if, if I thought I had been hijacked, I mean, he thought he had been hijacked. I mean, the, with his status and I was this young whippersnapper, you know, who he assumed was some kind of tree hugger, right? He was dripping with sweat of indignation. And just before we went to air, I leaned over to him and I said, you know, Mr. Monroe, I've always wanted to have an opportunity to, to thank you because your union put me through university. He said, what are you talking about? Well, sir, your union put me through university. Where'd you log? Dean and Bay. What was the TFL? 39. What, what was the local? And then we went to air, and I proceeded to say exactly what I was going to say about what I knew to be the corruption in the industry and government, because I had been a forestry engineer in the front lines for the toughest logging camps in British Columbia. I was privy to everything. And everything I said, Mr. Monroe knew to be true. And he would have actually liked to have said some of it, because it was about his union members, right, who were getting screwed in many cases. But he couldn't say it for political reasons. But before that live interview was over, he had his arm around my shoulder, and he said, you know, I don't speak as good as this young kid because I didn't get to go to college, but I'm telling you, this is a kind of fine young man my union makes for the province of British Columbia. So it's like, you know, because of that, I had an opportunity to say all those things, and, Mr. Monroe didn't really quite realize the extent to which he had endorsed everything I had said yeah. on camera. Yeah, you know, across all of Canada. Yeah. So again, and and these moves
0: that you pull, it's like jujitsu. It's like you know, you're you're taking the momentum and you're positioning yeah, it for yeah, your own gain.
1: Yeah, and I think you you get away with that if you're sincere, you know, because you don't, you can't. You can't scheme your way to those kinds of things. They, they, they kind of, they unfold out of, some, I think, some kind of, uh, I don't mean precious, but sincerity of intent. Yeah. You know, it's like it's like the kind of bodhisattva rule, you know?
0: Rivers are a protagonist of a number of your books. You, it's, it's like a literary structure you're using. The river is the protagonist. You've written one river, Uh, which I read many years ago, which is the definitive book, in my opinion, on the Amazon river. You just came out with the book Magdalena, um, similarly focused on the history of Columbia, uh, FARC, even prior to that, the Spanish, and just the entire history of that river. And the Grand Canyon, you did a IMAX film and a a book um, around water issues in the Southwest with Robert Kennedy, uh, RFK. I'm curious about, let's talk about the Grand Canyon first in the Colorado River. Um, there's a lot of water issues that are starting to come to bear. Arizona's reduced their take rate from the Colorado by 25%. They've just implemented at a state level, um, no, no de- new development can use groundwater as of some months ago. Um, it, in a the water issues in the American West are starting to be real. Policy actions are starting to be taken at least at the end of the river. I'm curious, um, and also it's a very high precipitation year (laughs) and with global warming oceans are uh, warming up and with oceans warming up, there's a lot of precipitation everywhere and it has been a wet year in the American West. But I'm, I'm curious, are you hopeful about Water, water issues in the American West. Are you pessimistic? Um, just your current view on the whole
1: thing. Well, I think I think that um, it's not just that people are "quote unquote" waking up; it's that the situation has become so dire that it can no longer be ignored. Um, you know, it's a fascinating story. I mean, you know, Wallace Stegner famously said there's a single cardinal fact about the geography of the American West, and that's the the undeniable reality that west of the 100th meridian, which is a line of longitude that basically goes from Manitoba to Abilene, Texas, um, south of the Canadian border, north of the Mexican frontier, and east of the Sierras in California, there's no place that gets more than 20 inches of rain a year. And, and cities like Reno and Vegas and Phoenix get seven inches of rain a year as much as can fall in an afternoon in Miami. And so that whole area was known as the Great American Desert. But deserts imply austerity and Americans don't do austere. So as the frontier moved west, the nomenclature of place changed But the ecology didn't. So suddenly it was, you know, the Great Basin or the, you know, the something butte or the something plateau. But the harsh reality remained. And when the Mormons moved west in the 1840s, they settled in the Salt Lake Basin and immediately, in this kind of amazing way, set to work creating Zion. And, I mean, literally within hours of arrival, they were cultivating fields. And eventually they brought six million acres into cultivation and irrigation. And that became a kind of model, an ideal. And, you know, as the frontier moved west, um, it was promoted with the rigor of 19th century science that the reason there was no rain west of the 100th meridian was because the fields hadn't been tilled that if you tilled the fields somehow the rain would magically come those
0: years were flood years too. the late 1800s when the mormons first came in that decade many of the first mormon towns were completely wiped out in floods there was a lake in central california the size of
1: lake michigan well they were lucky to arrive when they did in that in that sense in terms of irrigation but i think the, the main thing is that as the frontier moved west, there was all this sort of propaganda from railroads and developers that, you know, the American west was just, the agricultural potential was bountiless, um, that if we just turned over the soil, the rain would come, and and people like John Wesley Powell was saying the obvious, that, that um, the dream of the Jeffersonian ideal of 160 acres per family might have worked back east, but west of the meridian it was delusion that 10,000 acres wouldn't be enough if there was no water for a family and a, and and 160 acres could be too much if, it, if 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 someone didn't you know if you had water that would be enough kind of thing you know and um, and so as it became clear that the rain wouldn't come just by turning over the soil then the rain had to be brought the water had to be brought to the soil and so the success of the mormons became almost um, national policy as we sought out to green the desert, right? And um, that's what the Bureau of Reclamation was all about. And at the end of the day, after all the rivers have been compromised, um, in all the American West, only about an area the size of the state of Missouri has been brought into cultivation, and much of that by groundwater as opposed to river water, right? And and yet and so the reality remains and and um, in the meantime we've compromised uh, all these rivers and the population continues to grow you know and they're they're now 40 million people some
0: of the fastest growing metropolitan areas right, of the last right. three and, or four and years. But, but the
1: other the, the really i think one of the things about the book river notes that that you know is interesting but also perhaps disturbing is that it challenges some of the fundamental myths of the American West? You know, the idea that we could bring it into cultivation, uh, or the fact that, you know, right now, um, you know, the the vast percentage of the water consumed is not going to swimming pools or golf courses. It's going to agriculture and much alfalfa to grow alfalfa the, yeah. for dairy cattle or hay for for cattle, and yet the all of that is not produced um i mean all the um um 250 million acres of land that is given over to grazing rights produces less than 10% of america's meat right and, and some uh, of the
0: alfalfa was was be, was being shipped to saudi arabia as yeah, a form and, of water
1: export <laughs> oh no i I've, I've written all of this in this new version of the river notes book but but i mean i think i i, th- I think this is this is really the challenge in the American West is, is um, you know, this conflict between agriculture and, of course, urban expansion. You know, and um, right now, um, you know, we're seeing we're seeing mercifully because of the high snowmelt that the reservoirs of of uh, Lake Mead and and Lake Powell have. In the case of Powell, gone up forty feet since its lowest point, and similarly, the Great Salt Lake has increased in by about three feet in you know height, which is all great. But it's not clear that the the drought that's now been with us for a generation has really ended.
0: 30, 40 years. Yeah. The reason I bring up the floods of the eighteen sixties, eighteen seventies is is there um, is a geologic pattern of multi-decadal drought punctuated by multi-year. Uh, flooding and high precipitation events in the American West. It's more or less the geologic record. And so, and and part of the development model that you're describing was biased by wet years. So the whole- Well, even,
1: even the 1922 pact between the seven states of the basin, which subdivided the water, there is an estimate of the annual flow of the Colorado being something around 17.5 million acre feet, right? Well, it turns out that it was more like 15 million, and then as the period of desiccation came along, it dropped to more like 12 million, and then it dropped even as low as 10 million. And and so you still have these seven states, um, struggling over their allotments that were determined almost a century ago in a time when both the water flow was overestimated and maybe even a more moister regime. Yeah. And so you have people you had at least until a recent resolution um, of the disagreement. You had, you know, people fighting over allotments of a scale that the river couldn't provide. And and because of that that's brought on the crisis of Lake Mead and Lake Powell, the reservoirs because for the last years we've been consuming way more water than the river produces, right? And the only source has been those reservoirs, which is why, you know, Lake Powell got down to twenty two percent, Lake Mead to twenty eight percent, literally on the edge of death pooling, at which point not only does the hydroelectricity generation stop, but the river itself stops flowing. Eutrophication below, can below start the, happening. Below the the dam site. So you know, all you can hope for and pray for is that this seasonal gift of the gods, which has resulted in a reprieve for the system, will either foreshadow an ongoing, you know, end of the drought and higher precipitation in the future, or at least will give us time to begin to think of where our priorities are. And as long as the vast percentage of the freshwater, of the Colorado is, is used to grow cattle and alfalfa and hay and grass in, in, in country where actually none of the above belong, it, it's hard to, it's hard to know what to do. I mean, you could, um, you know, I, I forget the statistics, Ted, but I, I, in, in the new, um, edition of River Notes, I, I had this thing where, you know, the, um, the, um, Oh, if all Americans just did not eat meat once, one day a week, that would release the amount of water that is equivalent to the entire Colorado flow from feed,
0: growing feed, and
1: yeah. Well, just, yeah, but it, and by the same token, to grow a single walnut uh, almond in California is only three point four gallons of water. So that you think such grotesque inefficiencies would suggest an easy fix, right? But on the other hand, if Americans really did stop eating meat one day a week, it would add up to being a reduction in consumption of billions of pounds a year, which would have huge economic consequences. And by the same token, you can say what you want about almonds, but they're California's greatest and most um, lucrative crop you know, with with a market in the billions, right? So so these aren't easy choices to make and they're real lives yeah. at stake, you know, but the bottom line is that that um you you know we you know we made we made a decision. I mean the decision we and the hope and the dream of someone like Floyd Dominey, you know, was that we could literally create Zion. We could reconfigure the hydrology of the American West. We could, we could green the desert, and it turns out that maybe we really can't. You know, or or that or that the infrastructure that was set in place, you know, is is to some extent crumbling, Um, um, and 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 with it a certain dream. On the you know, I don't know. On the other hand. you know, people continue to flood into Phoenix and Tucson and, you know. An I mean. incredible
0: race. There, There's an element of this story that feels similar to me to the Green Revolution in that it, there's a sort of Malthusian view, you know, there's too many people, there just need to be fewer people. That's going to solve the problem. There's too much development. There needs to be fewer, less development. That's going to solve the problem. But also... <laughs> The counter to Malthus's whole ideology is essentially Plato's, which is necessity is the mother of all invention, and you know to what degree will need precipitate solutions, engineering solutions, technological solutions, policy solutions to this water, this broad set of water issues.
1: I mean, I th- I, I, I totally agree with that except we're talking about a finite resource here. I mean, remember that a lot of what's been going on is the draining of the aquifers, and all the technology in the world can't replenish an aquifer. Um, the, the, the All the technology in the world um, can't increase the amount of precipitation if it's not gonna happen. Right? Cloud
0: seeding, I mean, cloud seeding uh, is one I'm cur- I mean yeah, I, don't I don't think know. it's a I great idea I but- don't
1: know about the technology I mean I don't know how viable it is I mean I'm no expert but I mean at some level you you you've got to make a decision as to whether or not you want to farm the desert right yeah. and 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 if you and you, and if you want populations in the cities to grow as they are you you you're going to have to make some hard choices and those choices aren't about whether or not we, you know, have swimming pools. I mean, that, that this is a bit of a red herring, you know. Yeah. All the fountains, all the golf courses, all the swimming pools are, are trivial compared to the consumption of water by agriculture. And yeah. and and there's agriculture and there's agriculture. And so it's one thing perhaps to go lettuce in Yuma or, or in the Imperial Valley, it's another to growing alfalfa in arizona that's shipped to saudi arabia because they're smart enough to prohibit the growth and use uh, 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 cultivation of that crop in their water stressed nation um
0: i guess what i want to ask you wade as somebody who's crafted a life of adventure of storytelling quite successfully navigating um this this world as as an individual collaborating with other great artists and creators but also working with big institutional forces do you have any advice for because it's hard it's hard being a freelancer it's it's not straightforward there is no path the pathless path you sort of have to forge your own path do you have any advice i mean literally for me but also for any Anybody listening, I mean, well, I th- how do you approach that?
1: You know, I I grew up in a family that was really loving and kind, but didn't do much, you know? It was a kind of classic middle-class world where you thought creativity happened to somebody else. And it took me a long time to understand that creativity is a consequence of action, not motivation, right? You can't be creative if you don't do. And I learned at a very early age to jump off cliffs. And what I meant by that is, you know, I only had one word in my vocabulary, which was yes. Um, And not because I I was particularly clever or anything, I just didn't know any other way to escape that kind of the confines of the circumstances of my birth. And, you know, it took me a long time to realize that, you know, you know, it's like Jim Whitaker said, if you're not living on the edge when you're young, you're taking too much space. Or Terrence McKenna famously said, you jump off the cliff and you discover you land on a feather bed. I mean, I think when you're young, you have to be an opportunist in the sense of you, you put yourself in the way of opportunities where there's no choice but success and you suddenly find yourself capable of doing things um, that would have been beyond your imaginings a couple of months before. I mean, the other thing, Ted, is that, you know, the world doesn't exist to hold us down, but it does its best to try to, you know, just as our friends do, you know. I mean I I've never done anything in my life where the world around me wasn't saying you can't do this. Um and and people get so hung up about credentials. How can you be a photographer? You haven't gone to photography school, as if that's got anything to do with it, right? But look at your life. Your life is exactly you, you've modeled this kind of way of thinking and living in the best sense of the word. I mean, I mean, when I was young, you know, I, I I used to fight forest fires, and I knew I wanted to go to college a long way from home. And I and I would run into these American draft dodgers in our fire camps, and they were so irreverent, and they'd tell our bosses to piss off. And one of them had the Life magazine with the Harvard student strike on the cover from 1969, I guess. And I said, in this atavistic way, I said, you know, that's a college I want to go to, you know. And, you know, everybody around me was sort of saying, I mean, I had support from teachers and family and that, but I mean, sort of like, you know, there was always, you know, what's wrong with our universities in British Columbia? Or, you know, you well, you go off, you're supposed to be, a, you're studying law, aren't you, at Harvard? And what's this anthropology thing? Wait a minute, you're you're this precocious anthropologist. What's this botany thing? I'm trying to put you in a box. Well, wait a minute, you've just been three years in the Amazon collecting plants. What's this voodoo thing? Hey, you've just written two you know, breakthrough books on voodoo, and you wanna go where, Borneo, and, and, and be an activist? Wait a minute, you've done all this work with the Penan, and now you wanna write a book about who, I mean, in other words, you know, at every single step of the way, there are gonna be people, and it works that way with friendship as well. I mean, you know, you, you've got a beard, you've got your hair. If you shave your head and shave your beard, people around you are saying, hey, that's not my Ted Hesser, Where's his beard? you know in, yeah. in other words you you know you have to be be prepared to just go out on a limb and 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 do it I mean I you know i um you know i I uh became a writer in a completely serendipitous way i, I uh you know the key thing for writers have something to say the world needs to hear and I kind of felt I did, but I remember I wrote tried to write a first book and the editor wrote back you know. Now that you've got that out of the system, you know, write us a book that you think you can, you know? And then I I, I remember I walked off the street to a literary agent in London with the idea of the zombie book, you know? And um, suddenly I had a book advance and I had to teach myself to write. And I did in seven months, you know? And that book came out and was edited over in, in a day. And suddenly I was a writer or, you know, same thing with photography or filmmaking, you know how it is, I mean, you. you you built up a whole career as an extraordinary, not just an adventure photographer, but a stunningly incredibly original photographer. And you didn't do it by going to photography school, although that could help some people. You just went out and did it. yeah um, and uh you know i i I think the other thing is that you know we we a vocation or a career is not something you try on like a jacket. It, it's something that builds around you. Step by step, nothing is a waste of time unless you make it so. Um, nothing is beneath you, and you see it that way. I mean, for example, you know, I, I graduated from from college with a good record and two years in the Amazon, very precocious young botanical explorer. But something wasn't quite right. I didn't know what I wanted to do, and I ended up going living on Haida Gwaii, uh, working as a park ranger. And the fall came around. And uh, I didn't know what to do, and I, you know, mellow is a word that's not in my vocabulary. It means, by the way, a state of overripe fruit. I've never wanted to be mellow, and um, I was going crazy with inactivity. So I just lied about my credentials and hired on as a forestry engineer, and spent a year in one of the one of the most interesting logging camps. Right now, I've poor father at the time, who had spent half of his savings, not his income, his savings, to send me to Harvard. Suddenly, there I am taking a job, the lowest, you know, sort of level of logging camp. But that year in the logging camp was probably the best thing I ever did in terms of giving me a voice of authenticity a few years later, when the big battles for the forests of British Columbia, you know, came into being in the 1980s. So, you know, I... I've always lived sort of, you know, pessimism is an indulgence and despair and insult to the imagination, orthodoxy the enemy of invention, do what needs to be done and only then ask whether it was possible or permissible. I mean, but above all, I say to young people, be patient. You know, the pressure upon you is so intense. And, you know, a, a vocation or a career it's like a marriage, easy to get into, but hard sometimes to get out of, you know? And um, um, and you have so much time. I mean, we only retire at 65, because in the 19th century, Bismarck tried to bring in social security to quell labor unrest, and he picked an, an age at which most people would be dead. Well, you know, people of your generation are likely to live into their 90s. There's so much time, and and you know you 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 have to be patient and give your destiny time to find you i mean i i mean i i only can say this in retrospect but i mean i i remember one turning point for me when i came out of that logging camp kind of desperate at the age of 23 or 24 25 to know what i was going to do with myself pretty lost you know i mean i was doing great cool things but i was absolutely desperate to know my path in fact my sister early years when there was a series of biographical films done about me at The Geographic and other channels, CBC, my sister said, what they've all missed is how tough you were. And what she meant by that is not physically tough, but at a time when no one was more desperate to know their path, I didn't compromise. Mm. Not because I didn't want to, I really wanted to. I didn't know how to compromise. Mm. I couldn't see any vocation, like a, everyone felt like a, a kind of a cupboard to hide myself in. I couldn't see a single way of life. I mean, the idea of becoming—nothing against dentists, but I mean, the idea that I would spend the rest of my life uh, fixing teeth—it just—it just wasn't. I just—it—it wasn't for yeah. me. At the same time, I was so kind of desperate that I applied to law school and graduate school in botany as if they were the same thing. And I got into both, and I was saved by a fairy godmother in the guise of a receptionist at my sister's law firm where she was articling. And I walked in to pick up Karen after a long day at work, of her work, and this wonderful woman, who I had no idea who she was, elderly woman, said, Are you Karen's brother, Wade? Yes. You just came back from the Amazon. You eat all these weird plants. Yeah you follow me. She literally took me by the hand, I was about 24, 25, and walked me back through the dusty law library where she had set up a ladder that carried me up so that I came on her instructions face-to-face with an old lithograph of a British solicitor from like the 18th century, you know, fat belly, wig, pointed nose, you know, et cetera. And she suddenly bellowed from the bottom of this ladder, is that you? And I looked at this thing and I laughed and I said, no. And I walked back to the front desk with her. still, kind of Her holding my hand. <laughs> and I phoned the law school and retracted my successful application. And I went off to Harvard to study with Schultes, even though I knew 100% that I wasn't going to be a botanist. I knew that working with Schultes for six years would yield something marvelous, which it of course did. Yeah. But again, you know, when I when I decided to work in Haiti, Schultes was appalled. You know, why would you want to do that when you could be in the Amazon, you know? But again, I saw something in that story that I thought, you know, and, and I think that's sort of true. I mean, every book I've ever written, certainly One River, Magdalena, um, uh, Into the Silence, um, um, Serpent the Rainbow. You know, n- no one thought that these books could be successful. I mean, you know, I mean, or 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 the subjects of interest. You yeah. Know? Um, but you just can't listen to the voices. And 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 in retrospect, you know, had I compromised and gone to law school, for example, I probably would have been a pretty lousy lawyer. Uh, but. Certainly, a disappointed man. Not mm-hmm. that there's anything wrong with being a lawyer. It just wasn't for me. Yeah, there's a lot of wisdom there. <laughs> well, you know, I, I remember once I was uh, uh, in the uh, Sibundoy in southern Colombia, and uh, with an old friend of mine, a shaman Pedro Hebioy. Wasn't really a shaman. He was more like a scientist, really a botanist and uh he told me something really wonderful he said you know when you're when you're young you're too young to understand the world ahead of you and when you're old you're too old to understand the world coming at you from below in between there's a narrow sliver of light that illuminates your life and that's where you have to decide whether you're going to go blind whoa you know, in other words, you're gonna follow. Are you gonna follow that beacon of light to where you need to be? Yeah. And it's not easy, and it it's not never a clear thing. And and I it's uncomfortable. I can look back, and you know, gosh, I could have gone. It could have all gone south so quickly, so easily. At so many moments, inflection points in my life, I suppose. I mean, if a book had been a disaster, or I don't know, whatever. But you know. I, I, always, I still say, don't compromise and give your destiny time to find you.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you for your time here, for those wise words. Um, thank you for sharing some of your story. I hope people um, look more into your books, into your past. Um, we've mentioned a bunch of your books here. I'll put some of those in the show notes. Um, but uh, Wade Davis, you've been an inspiration to me um, my whole life, so I hope others um, can watch this and pick up some of that, some of that
1: magic as well. Great, thanks, Ted. Wonderful to be with you. Yeah. Congratulations you. on your new baby.
0: Thank you. The light is very bright at the moment. <laughs> <laughs>